0: If you would take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. And we're going to be looking at two texts in Deuteronomy. Uh, we'll start in chapter 7, and I'm going to read verses 6 to 8. And then we'll look at chapter 10, verses 14 to 16. And before we read the word of the Lord, let us seek the, our Father again in prayer and ask him to help us understand. Would you pray? Gracious God, we thank you that you are a God who has spoken and that Your Word is recorded by the instrumentality of Your Holy Spirit through men. And Lord, we thank You that Your Word is here before us for us to read and study and ponder. Lord, we pray that by the power of Your Spirit You might enlighten our eyes. Help us to see wonderful things in Your Word and use Your Word to shape our thinking of You and to show us the duty You require of us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy word? Again, we're looking at Deuteronomy 7. And I'll read verses 6 to 8. And then we'll turn over to chapter 10. The Lord says to His people, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And we'll read verses 14-16. to Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You, above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Well, this is God's holy word and may He bless it to our hearts. Brethren, please be seated. Two weeks ago, we began a topical series on the love of God from 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. And in that text, we looked at the essential nature of our God, namely, That love is not just something our Father does. Love is who He is. Our God delights to love. It is natural to Him. We saw together that our Father is not cruel, or hard, or miserly, or cold. He is rather kind, benevolent, tender, full of compassion, and abounding in steadfast love. And yet, knowing that we struggle to believe these things about Him, especially when the devil whispers into our ear that our God is selfish and stingy, or as our own sinful flesh, suffused with unbelief, is tempting us to go a different direction, the Lord, in His kindness, knowing our frames, keeps telling us of His love we reflected briefly on Psalm 136 and how there's a refrain about 26 times. For the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Or Exodus 34 in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth. And this is repeated verbatim about nine times in Scripture. Now, creation and providence alone could display the love of God to us, but it's God's covenant love his saving purposes through our redemption in his son that overwhelmingly demonstrate the love of god to us love which came first to us and having been loved like this we are a people who who are to behold the love of our god to eye that love so as to receive it and believe it and then seeing this love we are to go on in life not with heaviness, not with sourness in our soul, not with weakness, but with joy and confidence, basking in the privileges of being the children of God. Well, this morning we're continuing our reflection on the love of our God to steady our minds and to strengthen our faith and hopefully to stir up our affections. And what we're going to begin doing in this topical series now is we're going to start unpacking the Father's love in its attributes. So the attributes of the love of our God. Attributes like everlasting love, an extravagant love, an unchanging love. And this morning we're thinking about the unconditional love of our God. And to do that, we're looking at these two texts in Deuteronomy. And I know what you're probably thinking. Deuteronomy is not the book I would have picked to talk about the love of God because it's a boring book that most of us frankly don't read very much because it's filled with the law. But you must remember the law is given in the context of love. God loved His people and saved them, and now He graciously gives them a law to tell them how to return the love to Him. So in the midst of unfolding the law, Moses reminds God's people of the motivation to serve this great covenant God. And that motivation is His unconditional love. Now, we're going to walk through our two texts and we're going to ask two questions. And they are these. Why does God love us? Why does God love us? And how does the love of God influence us? And we're going to begin with why does God love us? And we'll spend the majority of our time here. Now, as I begin, let me, let me encourage you to use your imagination for a minute. Let's imagine that this past week, a particular husband among us decided to buy his wife a card to express his affections to her. But instead of leaving it to Hallmark to come up with all the lines, he decides he's going to tell his bride himself of his love to her. Now, surely this would stir her fancy, right? Some of you ladies are already hoping this illustration rattles around in that mind of your husband. Well, don't wish for that just yet. Because listen to what this particular husband proceeds to tell his wife. Dear bride, as I reflect on our relationship together, how the fire kindled in my heart for you, I must tell you that I did not determine to love you because you were the most striking woman I had ever seen. Truth be told, you weren't attractive at all. And I didn't give my love to you because I thought you were particularly funny or charming. To be honest, you're pretty stubborn. I can't imagine anyone loving you in view of your hard hardness, which goes to the very core of who you are. So, as I thought about it, I wanted to tell you that I haven't loved you because of anything in you at all. I haven't loved you because of anything you've ever done. I only love you because... I decided to, and I chose to display my compassion to you by, on the basis of my own choice. Now, how do you think this fellow's wife would respond to such a card? He may not live to see another day. <laughs> I'm sure she would be offended. What woman wants to hear, indeed, what, what person wants to be told that I don't love you for anything in you? We, we want our good qualities... Extolled, we all crave affirmation. And we want to know the reasons we are lovable. Now, in a different context with a different biblical focus, we could examine the role of biblical affirmation. But when it comes to considering our relationship with God, and specifically the cause of His love to us, there is no ground of self-affirming thought. How is that? Well, Scripture describes us, God's people, as the bride. We are the people for whom the Father sent His Son from heaven to save, like a husband seeking a bride. However, it's the prideful instinct of human nature to search for something in us that commends ourselves to God, some ground upon which to boast. And that isn't just true before conversion. It's also true after conversion. Prior to our conversion to Christ, we didn't see our sin for what it was. We had no real understanding of the perversity of our nature. We thought we were basically good or certainly not as bad as that guy over there. But grace awakened us to see our radical corruption and that Christ died for the ungodly. And that was us. But then even after conversion, we can struggle to grasp that we remain, as the Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield put it, just miserable sinners. Warfield writes this, Our need of Christ does not cease with our believing nor does the nature of our relation to Christ or to God through Christ ever alter no matter what our attainments in Christian graces or our achievements in Christian behavior may be. It is always on His blood and righteousness alone that we rest. There is never anything that we are, anything that we have, Anything that we do that can take Christ's place or take a place alongside of Christ as though we're now presenting ourselves lovely and the Lord could accept us because of what we've done. No, we are always unworthy. And all that we have or do of good is always of pure grace. Well, Deuteronomy 7 and 10 are given to set God's people straight about these very things. Here the Lord reveals that His love was not set upon His people because of something in them as though they are lovely. Some innate beauty that they had was not the cause of their redemption. God's love began with His free initiative. So there can be no pride attached to it. No ground for boasting. As Paul will point out in Romans 3, in Ephesians 2 and 1 Corinthians 1. Indeed, the love of God rooted in his covenant mercies are to be recognized as unconstrained, uninfluenced, and wholly free. Let's think about these texts one at a time. Deuteronomy 7 The Lord is giving instruction to Israel as they prepare to enter the land and how they are to utterly destroy seven nations greater and stronger than they. No favors to be shown to these nations. No covenant to be made with them. No intermarriage permitted. No idol is to stand in the land. Why? Verse 6, because Israel is to be a people holy to the Lord your God. Of all the nations on the face of the earth, the Lord chose Israel to be His people. Literally to be His special treasure or treasured possession. That word means valued property in the sense of prized or beloved. It's used of David's special loot of gold and silver that he gives to God for the temple. But what makes Israel differ from all the other nations so that they should be the treasured possession of God? Was it because they were more morally upstanding? Were they easier to teach? Did they overflow with... Goodness, what sets them apart as God's prized possession? It's a natural question, isn't it? And the wickedness in Israel's heart could spring up in pride at this very point. We are better than the nations. And that's certainly what Israel struggles to think. Pharisaical thinking, you remember, will be quite similar. We're not like those Gentile dogs. And how dare you suggest that we should be baptized as though we need to be cleansed. We are the sons of Abraham. We're special because of our bloodline or the way we conduct ourselves. But what does the law say? Well, why does Israel live and receive the deliverance that they receive from Egypt while the other nations are given over to the ban of destruction? The Word says it's not because of you. It's because and only because the God of Abraham chose. And that begs another question. Why did God choose them? Well, I want you to look at what the text actually says in answering that question. Verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you. Literally that Yahweh, the covenant God, attached Himself to you, which is the language of marriage. So The Lord didn't set His love on you because you were more in number than any other people and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So what's the reason, Lord? Verse 8, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. Israel, though they are being led into the land of Canaan to conquer, was not chosen and loved because of their battle prowess or numerical strength. They didn't look like a mighty people. God didn't see this great nation and pick them as people might pick a prominent football team today because of their strength. Oh, they look good. I'll get behind them. No, Israel didn't look good. They weren't strong. They weren't. Militarily powerful. They weren't steadfast. And if we trace God's covenant mercies back to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we quickly see they were always small and fairly rotten. Weak and vulnerable. God promised numerical greatness to Abraham in time. How his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. But when that promise came, Abraham was Abram and he didn't even have a son. And where was Abram when the mercy of God took hold of him, when it gripped his heart? Joshua 24 verse 2 tells us, Long ago, Joshua says, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Do you understand what it's saying? Abraham was an idolatrous man from an idolatrous people. And he was 75 years old in the mire of worshiping false gods. You ever heard the expression, old dogs can't learn new tricks? Well, that fails to take into account the grace of God. Grace awakened him, but grace met him first. What could there possibly be in Abraham worshiping idols to attract God, there is no native goodness in Abraham. He was this mass of idolatrous corruption. And though he goes on, of course, saved by grace to command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord, if we study those after Abraham, from Isaac through Joseph's years into Egypt and the wilderness, what would we find of the fidelity of Abraham's descendants? We would quickly discover Israel's history is one of constant rebellion of stiff-necked men. So Moses will tell Israel in Deuteronomy 9 verse 6, Know then that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. There's the handwritten card by our husband telling us the true condition of His people. You were not attractive. You were stubborn, weak, and full of sin. You did nothing to bring Yourself to Me. I set My love on You. And why did God do this? The Lord says He attached Himself and chose His people because He loved them. Now, do you understand what's being said? Yahweh loved them because He loved them. He simply decided to give His love to them. What a strange saying that is. Because in one sense, it doesn't answer the question we all want answered. Because we're looking for a reason in us. And the reason is not in us. His love is not conditioned upon us at all. Not our background. Not our looks. Not our performance. Not any other reason we could mention. Now here's the point in the context of Deuteronomy 7. Israel is surrounded by... Various nations who worship these fickle, arbitrary gods and their promises, frankly, don't mean squat. They're totally unreliable. And yet, the Lord is saying to His people, I keep My Word. I don't change. I'm faithful to the oath I swore to Abraham. You can trust Me. Indeed, the reason you've been redeemed at all from Egypt is due to My faithful love, which you did nothing to warrant. Now, knowing these facts still doesn't explain why God set His love on His people. All we have here is a declaration that He did love. He acted according to His own purpose. So look over to Deuteronomy 10 now. Verses 14 and 15, our second text. It only reinforces this truth. Deuteronomy 10, verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet... The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Now we should marvel at what's being said here, at God's condescension. So, as one puts it, that the Lord should in a manner pass by heaven and earth with all of their beauty and abundance, and then set his heart on a few obscure men. Everything in creation belongs to God. Yet he has a particular affection for particular people. For Abraham and those who have Abraham's faith. And yet, was it Abraham's faith that commended him to God in love? No. God loved Abraham first. Paul likewise says in Romans 9 with respect to Jacob and Esau, you probably remember these words, that before Jacob and Esau were yet born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, in order that His choice and election might stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Why did God love Jacob? Anyone familiar with the story of Jacob will immediately know it's not because of anything in Jacob. He was a lying, manipulative mama's boy. Always hanging around the tents trying to get good, in good with his mama. And Esau seems to be a man's man. A hairy dude out there killing wild game to bring good food to eat. And yet the Lord chose Jacob in spite of Jacob. And he's pleased to call himself, get this, the God of Jacob. He set his affection on this conniving, immoral, deceptive man. And then the steadfast love of the Lord transformed him and made him a new man. Well, if you are a lover of the Lord Jesus this morning, this fact is no less true for you and me. The New Testament continues to pile up this fact for instance Titus chapter 3 verse 3 outlines for us our depravity our enslavement to sin and lust it tells us we were foolish we were disobedient we were full of malice and envy we were hateful and hating others and then comes the glorious statement but God but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our savior appeared He saved us, not because of works done by us and righteousness, but, catch the reason, according to His own mercy. Why has God loved us? Because He decided to. And because He is exercising mercy. And we could look at Ephesians 1 or Ephesians 2 or 2 Thessalonians 2 or 2 Timothy 1 and we could see the same truths highlighted. God chose us in love He set His affection on us and not for anything in us. God saved us, not because we were attractive, but He saved us because He purposed to exercise His grace. Grace given before time began. Because of the great love with which He loved us, we were made alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sin. Our God does not love us because we love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. Before we had one particle of affection to Him, when everything in our lives ought to repel Him, He loved us. Our whole lives, brethren, were an offense to God, refusing to go His way, rejecting His rule, and yet, He loved us. That's what Paul means when he tells us that Christ died for the ungodly. But here's the thing I want you to think on. Love is God's nature. And He chose to exercise His loving nature, His very affection toward us. Such a fact ought to make us, as John Owen says, leap like the baby in the womb of Elizabeth. We should leap for joy. How can we not fall down in amazement at a love like this? Spurgeon likewise says, O believer, Jesus loved you before the world began and all because He would love you. That is, He decided to. He loved you in order that He might reveal His love to you. He loved you that you would be conformed to His image. That we might share in His nature and His character and taste the Father's love and so draw nearer and nearer to Him in an ever-growing fellowship of, of affection. See the love which is its own cause spending its own self. If we deserved the love of Christ, that love would be diminished. Salvation would be something that God owes us. And we're rarely thankful for what we're owed. What we're owed is curse and everlasting wrath. But what has been given instead is the uncaused, uninfluenced love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Love that would spare Him not that we might be saved. God tells His people in Hosea, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. Healing love has come to us, beloved. And what are we to do in light of this love? Really simple application. We are to marvel. Are we marveling? Are we standing amazed? Here's how John Kent, who's an 18th century hymn writer, framed his thoughts in marveling over love. On such love, my soul still ponder. Love so great, so rich, so free. Say, while lost in holy wonder, why, O oh Lord, such love to me? Indeed, brethren, if this love has been lavished on you freely, unconditionally, apart from your works, then can anything you do ever sever that love which came first to you? Can all the wonderings of your heart drive His love away? No. You're one with Jesus bound forever. And His love, which was never based upon your works, will never be based upon your works. You don't perform to earn the love of Jesus. You don't earn the Father's affection. His love is a bountiful love. And it's proven to you In the crucified Son, this love is constantly flowing as a stream like this never-ceasing fountain bringing us who are in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ Jesus. And that love is going to take you from grace to glory. It's never going to let you go. Surely that should fire our affections for our God. Brethren, this is what we are to believe about the love of God. Allow your first thoughts of your Father to be those where you look upon Him and say, look at the free, eternal love He exercises towards me. And let that draw your soul in nearer communion with God. Let it endear you to your God that you would take delight in Him. May you say with a psalmist, how precious is your steadfast love? Or with David, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. But then secondly, and much more briefly, how does the love of God influence us? Well, to think about this question, I want you to take you to that second text in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Moses has just declared that the Lord has set His affection on His people to love them. He chose them above all peoples. So how is this truth of God's particular and unconditional love to influence our lives? Well, look at what Moses says. Verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. The sign of circumcision, a sign that belonged to Israel, it indicated that they belonged to the Lord. And that must not remain simply an outward reality. It must be accompanied by an inner spiritual reality. An attitude of the heart which is the opposite of being obstinate, recalcitrant, determined to go one's own way. God wants our hearts. Our utmost allegiance. That's what grace demands. Love like this cannot leave you unmoved or unaffected. It radically reorients your whole life so as to rip away all the defilement of sin and that you give your affections to the Lord who loved you with unimaginable love. What the Lord requires of His people has already been explained back up in verse 12. He requires their fear that they walk in all of His ways and love Him and serve Him with all of their heart and with all of their soul, that they keep His commandments, which are for their good. But here's what I want you to understand. The key to godly fear the key to their obedience was them to first understand the love of God. What truth drives your obedience? It is when God is seen as lovely and loving that we, the people of God, have communion with Him in love. We receive the love of God. And then we respond to His love with love. And beloved, that's the relationship we are to have with our God. It says the Father in Proverbs tells His Son, My Son, give me Your heart. Well, that's the essence of this command in Deuteronomy 10.16. God loves us that He would be loved. And we owe that love to God for He is the great God. But if we fail to see Him as lovely, if we don't eye our Father's loving heart, it breeds in us a dread and aversion of God. And how does that dread and aversion affect us? We hide from the Lord. And we flee from Him as sinners. We don't want to pursue intimacy with Him. And we view His commandments as burdensome, as unpleasant, maybe even as harmful. But the truth is, it's just the opposite. Christ's yoke is easy and His burden is light. That's the perspective of someone who knows He's loved and loves in return. If we have seen the love of God, if we've tasted the sweet free grace in Christ, we see that His commandments themselves are gracious. And that Christ's yoke is lined with love. And no response is more appropriate than to display our gratitude to His love by living a righteous life. Isn't this Paul's perspective? He tells us in Galatians 2.20, you probably know this verse, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Those of you who can quote it, do you remember the rest? "...who loved Me and gave Himself up for Me." Paul's saying, I was once bound under the powers of sin and Satan and death, and by faith in the crucified Christ, those things are dead to Me now. I died to them in Jesus. I've been raised. Christ is my hope and my righteousness. He's my all in all. But not only do I look to Him for my justification... I live every moment in absolute dependence upon Jesus. He gives me strength to live moment by moment. And the reason I'm compelled to live for Him is because He loved me and gave Himself up for me. Brethren in the Lord, is this very truth of God's love in Christ, love that is unconditional, driving your obedience? loved by such a great God in such an indescribable way with free love flowing to you, are we compelled by His love to spend ourselves for Jesus? This is the ground by faith of all acceptable obedience. The attitude of the believer is we dare not grieve our loving Father who has set His affection on us in Christ. Rather, we run in the path of service with a heart set free because He's loved us. Watts puts it well. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. It can be no other way. Brethren, is that what we see in our hearts? Thomas, Thomas Chalmers, 19th century Scottish Presbyterian pastor, he preached a very famous sermon called, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Do we have a love for God in Christ that expels, that forces out the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life? Having seen the way we've been loved in Jesus, are we beating off all the wonderings of our hearts? Are we trampling down our corruptions and our faulty thinking? And does that love flowing to us put a fresh fire in the soul to serve the Lord? Because we are debtors to mercy alone. We were loved. Romans 5 gives you four beautiful descriptions of yourself. We were loved when we were ungodly, sinful enemies who had no strength. If you entertain any thoughts of yourself, as high you need to go read Romans chapter 5 and at that very moment Christ died for the ungodly God demonstrated his love in this that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us how shall we live in view of these things brethren surely a heart that meditates much on the love of God will be a heart that is near to the God of love? Do you want a closer walk with God? That walk is stirred by fixing your mind, your affections, on the unconditional love of your God. May that be precisely what we do as we stand amazed that love so rich, so great, so free, Will be given to us in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do stand amazed at the depth of Your love, and yet we confess how often our eyes are turned elsewhere. We confess, O oh Lord, that we are prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. We confess, O oh Father in heaven, that our difficulties in life, our present pain, They occupy our attention to such a degree that we forget Your deep affection to us. Lord, we plead with You by the power of Your Spirit to awaken in our own soul the ability by faith to look upon You as a loving Father and to submit to You, trusting that Your wise hand brings everything that we have. For You have already demonstrated Your commitment to us in the giving up of Your own Son for our salvation. May we therefore run in the path of obedience, delighting in our Father of love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.